This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with my co-host and the creator of the show, Tom Jokic. And boy, we got some good stuff today. We sure do. And over the last several months, Christopher, we've had great moments on the show, very moving moments where we had Eddie Money talking about how he wants to be remembered, um, which was really interesting because it was way back in 1978. And after he passed away, we played those reflections of his life, you know, that were recorded almost 40 years before he passed away. We also had some very funny moments. Christopher, do you remember David Lee Roth and the wisdom of Dave with all of his craziness? I've tried to forget, but it, <laughs> I, it won't leave me. And we've also had some the moments that are, in hindsight, just tragic. We had, you know, John Lennon talking about the possibility of a Beatles reunion. And that that was just, you know, kind of hard to listen to, but it was also really beautiful that he was kind of so full of optimism for the future. We have also had some prime examples of rock star arrogance, specifically the Eagles. Have a listen to episode 406. And in that same vein, Christopher, we have Stuart Copeland and Sting of The Police, two guys who have an exceptionally <laughs> high opinion of themselves. And that being said, I was a huge fan of both guys during the run of The Police, but boy, it's fun to listen to those guys pontificate, and it's even more fun to make fun of them while they do it. I'm afraid we're just going to have to. That's all there is to it. So what else do we got coming up, Tom? Well, Christopher, we had a request for one segment this week. A big fan of the show, John in California, reached out to us through Facebook and told us he wants to hear some Roxy music. And after some searching, I've got some clips with Brian Ferry and Phil Manzanera. And Christopher, you and I will talk about why some guys in that band look back at their biggest album with some regret, which is really weird in hindsight. Also, in the last few episodes, we spent a lot of time talking about some of the biggest Canadian songs ever. Today, we will end our episode by talking to a Canadian legend who wrote such powerful songs that she was actually banned from singing them on American television. It's a wild story told by the artist herself. But first, let's get started with the police. The Police from 1980 and Don't Stand So Close to Me. What's the sound of a band on top of the pop music world, on top of their game creatively, who can seemingly do no wrong? Well, this is it. We have two fascinating and perhaps at times annoying interviews with Sting <laughs> and Stuart Copeland from two separate occasions a couple of years apart. Now, the Sting interview, Thomas, from 1980 around the release of their third album, Zenyatta Mondata. Yes, we'll talk about that. An album that was completed the night before the tour began. In spite of the rushed circumstances, it produced, among other hits, Don't Stand So Close to Me, the UK's best-selling single of the year. Now, the subject matter, which would be poison in today's pop world, seemed to largely slip by <laughs> unnoticed at the time. For sure. The Copeland interview is from two years later, and much has happened in the interim in police world, but we will let the participants tell the story. We start with Sting. Of course. He, for not the first time, addresses the reggae influence on the band. In London, um, reggae is a sort of... Uh, it's not Kingston, Jamaica, as a lot of people say. It's actually London. Mm -hmm. a, a Jamaican reggae band will come to London to make it. I Shot the Sheriff by Eric Clapton. That mm -hmm. was just... Uh, a rip-off? Well, it wasn't a rip-off. It was an attempt to recreate the Jamaican sound. They, they used a tune actually written by a Jamaican artist, and they played it pretty much with the same sound to mm -hmm. recreate that Kingston sound, which <laughs> we have no interest in doing at all. 
We don't want to sound like a reggae group. We have no interest in playing true reggae. In fact, what we want to do is play something that's different from reggae. White reggae. Um, I think that's a fairly accurate assessment of where we were maybe 18 months ago, where we'd obviously taken a great deal of influence from reggae artists like Bob Marley, Peter Tosh. Uh, also, it was, it was kind of... We used to jump from that to playing standard white rock and roll. We've now refined that particular style, and it's, it's, it's become our own. We've assimilated both things into one, so now that they're kind of... You can't really tell. Like A song like Don't Stand So Close To Me has reggae... Um, inference in it but it's not that obvious it's it's part of us it's 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 been assimilated very subtly into it the same is true of most of the album you, you can't see us jumping from one style to another as on the previous so it's it's becoming more and more refined boy you want two guys who are very confident in themselves there you are Stuart and sting he laughs at the poor djs having to say do 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 every time they play the record <laughs> De-do-do-do-de-da-da-da. Now we have to, every time we play that song, we have to say that on the air. Is there any way we can abbreviate that that wouldn't offend you somehow? <laughs> Actually, what, I, what I, had, I had thought of this problem um, when I wrote it. I thought I'd put a subtitle to it, which was Words, 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 which is a quote from Hamlet by Shakespeare. Uh, but I forgot to tell the record company to put that underneath, Words, Words, Words. But I think De-do-do-do-de-da-da-da is a nice way of bringing DJs, you know, down to earth. You have to say it. <laughs> The do 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 da 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 the police from 1981, Zenyatta Mandata. Okay, I'm going to take a moment and defend that song. <laughs> sure, the main part of the song, the chorus is da do 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 da 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 is all I want to say to you. But the rest of the lyrics start with the words, Don't think me unkind. Words are hard to find. They're only checks I've left unsigned in the banks of chaos in my mind. But when the eloquence escapes me, the logic ties me up and rapes me. Those are fascinating lyrics, and it's about how people subvert language and twist it for their own ends. Poets, priests, and politicians have words to blame for their positions. It keeps going. It's Sting being... Sting in his most erudite manner, but mm -hmm. the lyrics are actually incredibly good, and I believe that the simplicity of the chorus is kind of a way to deconstruct the language to say, sometimes all I need to say is the do-do-do-da-da-da-da to tell you how much I love you. There you go. That's the meaning of that Well, song. well <laughs> defended, sir. The court finds in favor of Mr. Sumner. Okay, great. <laughs> We're talking to the police from the early 80s. This time we switch over to drummer Stuart Copeland, who talks about the making of their last and best album, Synchronicity. This time we were really concerned. We had to work hard at making this record. Ghost in the Machine, we just banged it out. That was an easy record to make. It just came really naturally. Um, but this one here, we really had to craft with a lot more um, concentration. And we didn't get around to as much material as we did previous, on previous albums. That's Every Breath You Take by the Police from their 1983 masterpiece, Synchronicity. 
Funny, but that was probably my least favorite song from that album, even though it was their biggest hit. And the reason why I thought it was their least interesting is I appreciated The Police as much for their complexity and musicianship for anything else. And that song was just too simple for my tastes. But I hear that originally there was a very, very complex keyboard part that they added to that song and then they stripped it away. And listen, people love that song and they love it because of the simplicity. And also the video was very simple, that black and white, that monochromatic look that it had. So I do appreciate the song. It just, I liked kind of the more complicated uh, stuff that they did. That's what drew me into them in the first place. Well, they were masters of the video art. Let's acknowledge that. And that had a huge part in making that song the uh, success that it was. Um, it is a simple song in terms of the chord structure. It's like the, one of the oldest um, chord forms that you could possibly, you know, imagine. But it shows that you can put timeless elements, musically speaking, to work for you and recontextualize them and come up with something that's new, which is clearly what they did. But again, yeah. just, uh, you know, hearkening back to our, our conversation about Don't Stand So Close To Me, um, I wonder if Every Breath Came Out Today would there be more questions asked about the um, sort of stalkerish theme of the song? That's right. Oh, can't you see you belong to me? Like that is... I'll be watching you? Yeah. <laughs> it is interesting because Sting himself has said, the song is about surveillance. It's not a love song that should be played at weddings. People just misunderstood it, just like they misunderstood Born in the USA by Springsteen, right? Mm. Like it's it's amazing that something can come across as romantic in the ears of so many people, but in fact was nothing like that in the mind of the songwriter. It's too bad when a songwriter has to hand out notes for people to understand their writing, though. <laughs> <laughs> we are now well into the Stuart Copeland interview, circa 1983, promoting what was to become their final album, Synchronicity. Copeland says that he likes to surprise people. That is a problem. I mean, five down, albums down the line, a lot of your licks that you, ma you made your name with, that you thought up when you were young and eager, um, and you had your whole life to think up, have been spotted, and your talent has you know, been appreciated, and then it's been analyzed, and then understood, and the magician has to come up with new tricks. And so that is a challenge, and just that I still, I still like surprising people. That's my main buzz. Rather than go out and play e expertly and beautifully the licks that they all have, you know, expect to hear, I get a much better buzz out of surprising people and coming out with new ones and leaving out the ones that they expected to hear because they've probably already got that in their repertoire anyway. Oh, yeah, you can see that, that he was always trying to meet or exceed the expectations that he had on himself and that his fans had on him. And as an aspiring drummer, I was completely inspired and intimidated by Stuart and his incredibly unique style. And when I met him a few years later, I walked in and said, wow, here's the guy who made me give up drums. And he wasn't as amused by that remark as I was, but uh, I said it. And I got his autograph. Yeah, he's pretty tough. I, I do remember when he came to much. <laughs> um, his adopted son had a role in the band at the time as well. Tell me a little about your family. You just had a, uh, a little baby, a little boy. That's right. And you have an adopted son as well. That's right. Uh, the, these are both new ventures. Well, no, fairly the, recent. No, the adopted son is not recent at all. In fact, he's happened 14 years ago. And, okay, uh, but I mean, uh, the kid's a t the kid's a humongous teenager. I mean, it seemed like just yesterday he was a cute little thing in diapers, and 
now he's like a great big smelly kid with armpits and, and stealing hubcaps. So you've known him since he was born? Uh, no, I met him when he was five. And um, he's on tour, as a matter of fact. He's, I saw him at the press conference yesterday. That's right, he's working. He's in charge of towels and uh, drinks. Very cool. Shout out to the guy who did that interview, Roger Bartel. Still lots more to come with the police when Famous Lost Words continues. So, Tom, the police picnic became a phenomenon, but did they enjoy it? Yeah, there were actually three police picnics in 1981, 82, and 83, and they were massive festivals in the Toronto area, and I was lucky enough to attend the first two. So did I, did I go to number three? You I did. went to the one with James Brown. That's right. That was the one that I, I missed. I saw their tour in Detroit and said that year. Okay, so let's hear what Stuart has to say about those police picnics. Does the picnic here in Toronto hold any significance over any other concert that you do on your tour, or is it just another show? It does seem to be that every time we do Toronto, it's a picnic. We do, we've done, I've done, that's the third picnic we've done in Toronto now. Um, I don't know, maybe Toronto is, is a good city for us, and instead of playing a, a hall, we have to do something large. And the largest things to do are these picnics. Maybe next year we'll play the airport. Yeah, I remember you mentioning that at the press conference yesterday. Sting also mentioned at the conference that he is starting to not like the idea of a police picnic. It's becoming a little too ritualistic for him, the fact that it's being done summer after summer after summer, and it's time for a change perhaps next year. Well, no, it's just the fact that you ask me if there's any special significance, and I scratch my head and say, well, no. I mean, I don't want to tell you that, you know, Toronto has no significance or anything. It's just that um, every time we play the city, it seems to be called a picnic. I mean, why isn't it called a riot? Oh, poor fellas. Imagine that. Every time you play in a city that has loved you pretty much from the beginning, they throw such a big party that they make it into a massive concert event, one in which your fans can enjoy your band, and a bunch of up-and-coming bands, too. I can't imagine how awful that must feel, Stuart. (laughs) Of course, Tom, you know, before they filled stadiums, there is a legendary Toronto performance that happened at a little club called Edgerton's. And uh, I think that was one of their first gigs in North America. And and allegedly, they performed to seven people. I was not one of them. (laughs) Seven? I heard it was nine. Oh, my God. No, I've definitely heard that rumor, too. That's great. As the leader of the police, Copeland recalls recruiting Sting and guitarist Andy Summers. Can you go back a ways to uh, the, the various members backgrounds leading up to the formation of the police you came from a group called curved air that's right i was playing in that group and that group was tied up in the industry game it was a very good group i don't want to denigrate the group because i enjoyed playing with them musically but every you know whenever we did an album we'd have to take it into the record company who'd have to you know there we were having to having to ask permission from the record company to release records because they'd spent so much money on it that it's their record and um, which doesn't leave very much room for artistic expression, you know, because you're so bound up and will it get radio play and so on and so right. forth. Um, and so Andy also has played with a lot of groups. You know, his list of credentials is very long. He's really a, he's been a really sought after session guitarist, which means he's played on a lot of heavy albums. Uh, but and through that, he also has learned the same thing that to play the industry grain means that you just it's not any fun anymore so when we formed the group uh sting came from, sting came from a jazz group you asked me about the background so i'll give you yes, the background yes. sting was in a jazz group up in newcastle he'd never been involved with the industry before he was way up in in the outskirts 
um, and playing with a jazz group. And I called him up from London and said, how would you like to join me in a group that's playing in the punk clubs? And he went, <laughs> But I talked him into it, and, and he was glad I did, because even though he was a jazz musician with typical jazz views about rock... Right. Um, right. He, it's he, inferiority. Yeah, when I took him down to those clubs and he saw the excitement from those kids and just that this was a place where things are happening. This is an audience that has its ears open and that are, that are ready... Um, to, to get socked between the eyeballs. Okay, the interview, by the way, there is by a guy named Rick Ringer, who's actually done a lot, uh, has a lot of interviews in the archives, but I just wanted to give him a shout-out. So that description there that Stuart gave is a great description of how the band got started and the excitement that was created in the punk era. Very good. Mm-hmm. Here... Stuart speculates about the meaning behind Message in a Bottle. The message in a Bottle. I know mm. it's kind of hard for you to, to speak for Sting since he wrote the song. Right. Right. But there's a line in there that, well, the, the, the major push of the song is about sending the message out, and all of a sudden there's hundreds of thousands of bottles coming back at you. Is, does, that, does that relate to your finding your audience in I Britain? don't know if Sting would give you this answer, but it does occur to me that a lot of the songs he's written are about loneliness and, and, and so on. He's actually not a, a lonely, miserable person. Uh, he's, but it's kind of like with Roxanne and Can't Stand Losing You and a lot of those kind of mournful songs. It's like a me- the message gone out in a bottle. And because there's been such an incredible response to it, it's like those bottles all coming back, a million lonely people. Right. And I suppose that's could be what he either consciously or subconsciously is saying in that song. From 1979, that's Message in a Bottle by The Police, a great song for a number of reasons, but mostly because it established The Police as a smart band with a very unique sound, which was very welcome on the charts at that time. Here, Mr. Copeland talks about creating It's All Right For You. Oh, It's All Right For You. I wrote that one, except Sting Sting didn't like my lyrics, so he he wrote a new lyric. He's got to sing the song so he can choose his lyric. And also he wrote a much better lyric. Um, and I played all the, all the backing tracks on that, too. That's got all uh, the backing tracks? Yeah, I played really? the bass, the guitar, the drums. And then Sting came and sang the vocals, and Andy played a lead guitar. He played a solo in the middle, and at the end there's a lot of guitar overdubs, which he, he played. He kind of turned it into a real thing. It's not a matter of I could play it better anyway. It's just a matter of, actually, that song was recorded. The other two weren't even in the studio when I did the backing track for that. It was one of the days when they couldn't come in. I think Sting might have been filming Quadrophenia that day or something. Right. And so I was in there by myself, and I put that track down. That's a very cool song mm-hmm. and a very cool story. Yeah. It's funny. When, the, uh, when Sting's away, the mice will play. <laughs> <laughs> Still more to come with the police when Famous Lost Words returns. We've dug through the archives, and I come up with tons of interview clips with the police. And finally, these last three belong to Sting. He talks about Don't Stand So Close to Me. Don't Stand So Close to Me. Tell me about that song. How, how, how you got to put it together? The song was inspired by a book by Vladimir Nabokov called Lolita. Yes. Which I have a great love for. Uh, I was also a teacher, and for a while I taught in uh, secondary school. Mm-hmm. I taught girls who were quite fanciable. I hasten to add, I never actually indulged in the uh, what the song is about. <laughs> it's a very imaginary song, but the situation does exist in schools, and it's an interesting subject. Yeah, that's Sting being Sting, talking about a song that might not be recorded in this day and age, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, he had some battles over songs. He had to fight for one of the song titles on that album. 
And when the world is running down, you make the best of what's still around. The title is almost longer than the song is. <laughs> I had to fight very hard for that title. Is that right? Yeah. They said it was too long. Yeah. But I said, it's not too long. I want the whole title. So they gave me after much fighting. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think the song marks an improvement in my songwriting in that it's about the problems of the world. It's an objective song. In the past, my, as you say, my songs have been about alienation, about the individual, very subjective. And I think songs like that one and Driven to Tears yes, yes. are much more um, mature, I think. Yeah, the song is When the World is Running Down, You Make the Best of What's Still Around. Not his best song, but it is very interesting. The, he references the Tammy show, which you know featured a lot of um, artists uh, in the mid '60s. It was kind of a, a kind of a documentary, a movie, a, a concert film with the Rolling Stones and James Brown. The James Brown performance in that is to die for. That's that's one of those things. If you've never seen it, you absolutely have to see it. Absolutely, it is spectacular. That band is so tight. James is kind of at his peak, and he just commands the stage. It's amazing. But that song is also about loneliness and depression, and it really captures the sound of that album, Zenyatta Mandata. Very good. And then there's the issue of the album titles. Always a hot topic. First it was Outlandos Demur, then Regatta de Blanc, which I think is a fine wine to serve at any dinner. Uh, and now Zenyatta Mandata. <laughs> any ideas about what'll be next? Oh, something ridiculous. People keep asking, where'd you get these names from? Why is it called that? And... What a, what a strange name, but that's just a mark of how successful they are as titles. I mean, if we called it uh, Police Brutality, nobody would, at, nobody would bother asking, you know what true, I mean? True, true, true. So we have a certain amount of uh, mystery attached to the titles. Well, kind of glad they didn't call it Police Brutality. <laughs> yeah. There you go. No kidding. So as you know, in oh. this internet age, having an unusual title helps a lot especially with searches, okay? So when you release an album, or even an artist, when an artist like The Weeknd comes out and he drops this, the, the third E, so it's W-E-E-K-N-D, that really helps when you're Googling his name. And also, many years ago, uh, Coldplay released an album called Milo Xyloto. And that's just a bizarre album title, but it really helps when you're Googling to find exactly what you're looking for. And as for a fan of the uh, police at the time, all those weird song titles were just another interesting thing about the band. There you go. Sting, Stuart Copeland, The Police on Famous Lost Words. Oh, catch that buzz. Love is the dog I'm thinking of. Oh, can't you see? Love is the Drug from 1975, Roxy Music on Famous Lost Words. By the way, this is a request. This particular segment was suggested by a faithful listener of ours, John D. So thanks very much, John. Tom, has it been 50 years since Brian Ferry formed Roxy Music, featuring Brian Eno and Andy McKay, along with a number of other players? Well, he just lost his job teaching ceramics at a girls' school in 1970. <laughs> Sounds like a punchline. The, the perfect preparation for, for being in a band. So why not form a group? Well, Ferry had, he, he had interest in being a group. He was ready to start a career because he'd already auditioned to be the new singer in King Crimson. Uh, he didn't get the gig, but the members of the band, including Robert Fripp, were impressed. And they helped Roxy get a record deal. So from their debut in 1972 until 1982... 
Roxy Music released eight studio albums culminating in what many consider their masterpiece, Avalon, and it is a beautiful, timeless piece of work. It stands the test of time, and their influence, particularly in the British music scene, is unparalleled. I would say along with David Bowie, Brian Ferry's vocal style influenced a generation of singers from Bono and Nick Cave to Morrissey and David Byrne. Our clips today are from two separate interviews with Ferry and Phil Manzanera. Before becoming the guitarist in the band, Phil was their roadie. <laughs> Brian yeah, starts, great. I know, yeah, you're gonna love that. He talks about why doing solo recordings is as important as his work uh, with the band. I found that kind of a great help. Um, uh, the thing of having a solo career as well um, meant that there was always kind of some variety in the work, you know. Um, in fact, the band's always kind of changed every year or with every album there's been a kind of change of personnel or something. And uh, I find all these little things just keep one's interest level sort of higher than it would be otherwise. I mean, I like working with new musicians, different players every year and in different studios. And it, it makes it kind of more interesting for me. You can see how working with outside musicians can be like a refresh to an artist, unless that refresh is just too refreshing and they don't want to even go back. That does happen, as we know. Yeah, for sure. He talks about working in the studio and how he relies on feel more than intellect. I think that if you start thinking too much about things, you know, it all becomes a bit too studied and too mannered. And coming from me, that probably sounds strange, but uh, uh, I don't know. I, I think that you really have just to do what you feel and, um, and not kind of try and write down too many rules about it because it's very much a, an emotional medium, uh, music. And uh, it has to be very much a felt thing and it's a mood thing with, with me anyway. Uh, and sure, once you kind of get any emotion that you want to put over uh, down on tape, then you start kind of playing around with it and kind of shaping it and so on and using your so-called intelligence or whatever. <laughs> Brian Ferry does sound kind of posh sometimes, doesn't he? Kind of like Sting. Well, he is posh. Let's, let's, let's just give it to yeah. him. He is posh, you know. He also talks about living with doubt, something that every artist at some point must deal with. Well, there's always a fear of, of failure, uh, in a sense, but um, it's a kind of a personal one. I mean, um, when you're in the studio, you're always trying to better yourself, do something that, that you felt that you haven't done before. So every time you kind of make a record, you say, well, will anybody else like this? I mean, uh, and you have your doubts about that. But uh, I never let it, I try not to let it affect me when I'm, when I'm in the studio working. Um, Otherwise, you go crazy, you know, saying you know, every note that you put down, is, are people going to like this? Oh, great insight into the mind of an artist trying to create music that's meaningful to you and wondering if anyone else is going to like it. I imagine everybody feels that way at some point when they're creating something. Mm. We still have much more to come on Famous Lost Words, including why two of the guys from Roxy Music didn't really care much for their biggest album. Plus, one of our favorite Canadian artists tells the bizarre story of being banned by the American government and how she didn't find out about it until years later. It's a riveting story, and it's coming up. 
This is Famous Lost Words, heard in 33 countries around the world. Live from California, that's Christopher Ward. I'm Tom Jokic in Brooklyn, Ontario, Canada, and our producer, Adam Karsh, is in Toronto. No matter where you are, we hope you're enjoying the show on one of the many radio stations that plays us, or in your earbuds on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Okay, so back to our Roxy Music segment. Christopher, you and I are both huge fans of the album Avalon. We just heard from lead singer Brian Ferry. Who do you have next? Well, Phil Manzanera is the new subject. He explains the sparse approach to making the album Avalon. I think what we, what we did a lot on Avalon was distill a lot of the Roxy sounds and, and to try and make it as empty as possible almost. Uh, I mean, to try and, uh, well, just to put on only what was absolutely necessary. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, we took off a lot. Um, Whereas uh, maybe on the earlier albums, one tended to overdub and overdub and do lots and build up these wall of sound things, um, which and the whole thing became so dense that and the, the record became a lot quieter. I think what we've learned is to how to make a good sounding record, a, a record with a strong mood. That's more than this. Roxy Music from 1982. As you said earlier, Christopher, Avalon is their masterpiece. It's moody and it's beautiful and it's very unique and it totally holds up today. And I think it's because they didn't get bogged down in those really cheesy synthesizers that were about to take hold on the music scene. They just missed it. The fake drum sounds, which was prevalent in that era, and I think because they missed it, it sounds more classic. It holds up better today than it would have had it been recorded probably two years later. That's my thought, anyway. Well, I interviewed Andy McKay and Phil Manzanera in 1985 when they were launching um, a sort of a side project. I believe it was called The Explorers. I hope I've got that right. If not, please correct me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was an interesting interview because after we'd sort of talked about their new band and you know so on and so forth, you know, I wanted to talk about the most recent Roxy album, Avalon. And they were just shy of dismissive of it. Really? They kind of, not they didn't write it off, but they referred to it as being Brian's project. And it was as if they wanted to kind of disown it a little bit. And I found that extraordinary, I guess, partly because of my love for the record, but also because the music that they play on guitar and sax is fantastic on that record. I mean, they have They both have a wonderful musical presence on Avalon, so yes. it, it did take me aback. It is interesting, though, that you say that, because in a way, Avalon is more of a companion piece to Boys and Girls by Brian Ferry, his solo album, mm. and he did another album. I don't know if that's the one with Slave to Love on it, but there was two albums that Brian Ferry put out that sounded very similar to Avalon, but there was mm. a lushness to Avalon that followed with Brian Ferry's solo work that kind of speaks to what they're saying there. I, I tend to agree with them. Hmm. Phil has mixed feelings about the influence that Roxy Music has on so many other bands. What about the, uh, the influence that you have had? Is it something that flatters you, or, uh, or do you feel a little sheepish about it, or very proud of the fact that uh, so many of the bands mention Roxy Music when they, when they mention their influences? Well... Yeah, it's, it's just beginning to sink in. I mean, I never thought about it before until I started doing all these interviews. <laughs> everybody keeps talking about it. Um, and it's something that I just don't really think about a lot. But I guess it's, so, it's flattering. 
and it's annoying at the same time if they're bands that are much more successful than us, particularly in America, <laughs> they keep citing us as influence. You see, what's the point of that? Um, on the other hand, I, I think you know lots of bands uh, of, uh, who who came up in the seventies were inspired to start and to get into bands by the Stones and the Beatles and stuff at the beginning of the sixties. And I guess it's a sort of parallel situation with Bowie and Roxy and stuff, especially in England. Oh, that's a great point. A lot of influential bands don't always become as popular as the bands they influence, and that must be frustrating. Yeah. It was great seeing the guys from Roxy on stage together in 2019 when they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, That was really, it was a very good performance, and it was great to see them happy. And by the way, shout out to Rick Ringer, who did the Phil Manzanera interview. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. Let's go back to 1965 with this protest song. And he's fighting for Canada. He's fighting for France. He's fighting for the USA. And he's fighting for the Russians. And he's fighting for Japan. And he thinks we'll put an end to war this way. That's Universal Soldier by Donovan, written by Canadian treasure Buffy St. Marie, a song that had wide-ranging appeal, but it also had far-reaching repercussions for Buffy. We'll find out about that, but first, Christopher, take it away. Tom, this segment is only five minutes long, but when it arrived in my email box, I thought, wow, I'm so happy that you dug that up, because what a five minutes it is. This is one of my favorite pieces that we have ever run. Buffy St. Marie... Canadian-American indigenous artist has had an extraordinary career by any standards. It began in the folk boom of the uh, early 60s when she made her mark with songs like Universal Soldier, covered by Donovan. She performed in the Coffee House circuit where she got to know fellow Canadian newcomers Leonard Cohen, Joni Mitchell, and Neil Young. And Buffy St. Marie spent the next two decades touring and recording. Now, in this interview, she talks about an amazing experience she had with Sesame Street, Mm -hmm. and tells us a little bit about her Academy Award-winning hit, Up Where We Belong, from 1982's Officer and a Gentleman, a song that also won the Golden Globe that year. Her accomplishments are many, and her story is best heard in her own voice. And if you've never heard her interviewed, this is a delightful five minutes with Capel Valley, Saskatchewan's Buffy St. Marie. Buffy St. Marie, glad to meet you finally after all <laughs> these you. years. I've been listening to your music uh, for years. I don't think there's another Canadian that can boast, in fact, uh, winning an Academy Award uh, and um, performing for Queen Elizabeth II on a command performance basis and working Sesame Street. <laughs> <laughs> what a combination. Yeah, all of those things. Not only that, though, that, but the serious side of Buffy St. Marie surfaced on Sesame Street with the idea of the, the native the consciousness about natives being being uh, taken upward that's yeah. some, that's did it work i think it did it's what i really wanted to do on sesame street i was originally asked on sesame street to do what everybody else does on sesame street you know come in for a one-time appearance and mm-hmm. count from one to ten or do the alphabet but i said wait i i was really uh interested to share with uh very young children the fact that uh native people exist that we are alive, that we have families, that we have fun, that we have toys, that we have languages, that we have counting and numbers, that we have a history, that we have um, toys from long ago, as, as other children will, will look at 
you know, my grandmother's antique doll. Mm-hmm. We have antique dolls too. Mm. Yeah, Sesame Street, you know, just gets down to the nitty gritty of what it's like to be a human child mm-hmm. in the the world community. And I, I thought it, that it would be a real nice thing for non-Indian people to experience uh, the contribution that you know our culture makes to ourselves and to the world at large, especially in the area of joy and fun. Well, you found yourself being blacklisted by the United States government at one point, did you not? Like, not being able to get any work? Well, I didn't know it at the time. I found out, like, ten years after the fact that that's essentially what had happened to me. Was it the Johnson term in office? Uh, Yeah. Lyndon Johnson? Yeah. Lyndon Johnson and Mrs. Lyndon Johnson apparently didn't like the idea of of people um, speaking out strongly on very much of anything. Mm. Eartha Kitt also was... She was also very heavily blacklisted. You know, no more airplay. I went from a point of, um, I, I just thought that people had lost interest in me. I mean, I, I would go on The Tonight Show and been, be asked to say nothing about Native people, to uh, not sing Universal Soldier, or Now mm-hmm. the Buffalo's Gone for Heaven's Sakes, or, or I wouldn't be invited. Too controversial. Well, that's what it was said, you know, and I just went for it. I said, okay, people are not feeling controversial in these days. People are sick of that. So I went to Europe. I went to Asia. You know, I was having concerts in Paris and Hong Kong and all over the place and having a wonderful time. Ten years later, I came back, and, you know, I had had a very, very nice time outside of the U.S. and continued to do U.S. concerts on reservations and benefits, and I really was quite blind to the fact that anything overt had been done to my professional life. And you found that out somehow. Well, broadcasters came forward and apologized for the fact that it had been done. They had letters Hmm. from the White House. Wow. Yeah, I know. I was shocked. Land of the free, home of the brave. Well, I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, administrations come and go. And and it didn't last for a very long time. But as you know, in the record business, you know, it, it's like it's like drowning a person. You, know, you only have to hold them underwater for about five minutes and they're dead for a very long time. That's true. <laughs> in the record business, losing um, that kind of momentum. You know, other, other artists come along and, um, you know, if people just don't hear from you, they... You know, go on to something else. About artist Buffy St. Marie, are you recording? I am. I'm recording at home. My husband, who's a film composer, makes a lot more money than I do. And a record producer. And a record producer. His name is Jack Nietzsche. He's a very famous person. Mm-hmm. Um, Jack uh, um, has provided me with just about everything I need in the way of computers and synthesizers and electronic instruments, which has been my love from the early 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I'm recording at home and um, really enjoying it, writing things about right now. and um, Still with causes in hand. Mm, occasionally. Occasionally I have written about that. I think I became very famous for writing about Native people because nobody else was. Right. And, you know, I wrote Universal Soldier, and I think that it, uh, because it was very unusual for a Native or a woman to write a song like Universal Soldier... Uh, it you know it, it sort of obscured the fact that most of the songs that I write are more like up where we belong and until it's time for you to go. Right. Buffy St. Marie from the mid '80s in conversation with the late great broadcaster Larry Wilson. Isn't Buffy Christopher simply mm-hmm. the most likable person? She's so great. She's kind of cool, but she's very serious. But she can also be very playful. Like she laughs so easily, and you know, she went through a lot over the years. And there she is, just sounding like full of joy. And that crazy story about her being blacklisted by the Johnson administration and only finding out about it many years later. 
That's shocking, but in this day and age, it's really not surprising. Also, I didn't know she was married to Jack Nietzsche. Nor did I. A very important producer who worked with Phil Spector, the Rolling Stones' Neil Young, and was a co-writer with Buffy on the song Up Where We Belong. That was the one that won the Oscar for her. That was quite the power couple. Jack died in 2000, by the way, at the age of 63. Buffy St. Marie is now 79 years old and is still going strong and still active. Well, that does it for this week's episode of Famous Lost Words. Thanks to our technical producer, Adam Karsh. Thank you, sir. And our executive producer, Rob Farina. Now, you can help simply by listening to past episodes on the iHeartRadio app. You can follow us on Twitter or Facebook, too. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Joker. Talk to you next time on another edition of Famous Lost Words. Famous Lost Words.